0: hello everyone my name is suki thompson welcome to reset the podcast a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life i do hope that your journey to feel more connected more inspired just a bit more energized starts here Take a moment now with me to reset. I hope like me, you've had a great break this summer and a chance to really reset. We have a great season ahead of us and it starts right now. But first I want to give you a trigger warning. We cover in this week's episode, a conversation surrounding suicide. So if you or someone you know are impacted by this topic, please see the helplines and resources below. This week, I'm joined by the inspiring, brilliant and brave Emma Woods. Emma was the CEO of Wagamama until June 2021, following an exciting marketing career, starting as a grad at Unilever. And she has since reset and begun a career as a chair and non-executive director, but that's not really our focus today. Emma has chosen to share with me how she's learned to cope and manage her grief, following on from the sudden loss of her beloved brother, Ben. After an ongoing battle with bipolar disorder, Ben tragically took his own life. Since it's World Suicide Prevention Day tomorrow, the 10th of September, Emma wants to use her experience to raise awareness of some of the issues around and the impact of suicide. So she talks to me of the struggles she saw Ben go through and shines a light on how hard it can be for those living with bipolar, maintaining normality and taking medication that can often lead to people feeling like they are living in a narrower spectrum of emotion. I think for me, one of the most important lessons I can share with you from this conversation is to really remember to ask somebody, not just once, but twice how they are feeling and never be afraid to ask for help. If you personally or know someone who's struggling with any mental health difficulty or having thoughts surrounding wanting to end their life, please use the helplines that are given below. So onto the conversation. Emma, it's so lovely to see you today. I'm wearing such a beautiful, bright jumper
1: yes well we're going to be talking about something quite emotional so I thought I'd wear happy clothes <laughs> yes.
0: yes you know we are we are going to talk about tough things and you know I always feel I don't know about you I feel sort of slightly nervous only because I think for me oh, it's much more difficult for you but I want us to be able to have a really good conversation and so you know, we are going to be talking about suicide today um, but I, I want to be able to help you tell the story and hopefully to help a lot of people and, and share a bit of your journey. So I wonder how you're feeling
1: today. I um, Kind of mixed, really. I mean, I want to do this um, because I think it's important that we do raise awareness of suicide. There's still so many taboos. And I, I wrote an article on LinkedIn this time last year. and was just overwhelmed by how many people reached out and said, um, uh, that it had meant to to them, so I want to do it, um, but uh, <laughs> I'm just not sure how I'm going to react, and if I have to go off and have a sob, it's halfway through. You'll have to forgive me. It's okay. Well, we can absolutely do that. Well,
0: let, let's start with you. but let's start with your childhood, because is it was it just you and Ben when you were growing up? Did you do you have any other siblings?
1: Uh, no, there are. In fact, there are four of us although three of us were, were very close and then my parents had a slightly messy divorce and, and then we had a, a fourth wonderful uh, brother called Paul um, but the three of us were, were kind of glued together as, as as youngsters yeah. Oh how old were you when your parents got divorced? And so my um I think I was about six it was kind of going on for a, a couple of years so it probably happened about five or six so very small really when you well, yeah.
0: It's young, isn't it? Because you don't really remember very much else, I don't think.
1: No, it's definitely very formative. And I think that's one of the things that kind of I've come to realise over the years, but especially since um, Ben's death.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But let's talk a little bit about you first. So very close childhood. Um, And then you went into actually quite a sort of spectacular marketing career before you then became chief executive. Wow. Wagamamas. How did that all happen for you?
1: Um, so I did uh psychology at university um and really enjoyed it. Um was taught by some fairly amazing people at the time, although I didn't realise so people like Richard Dawkins. I stumbled was probably yeah. um uh, a little bit sleepy into t- tutorials with him. Um he for those people who don't know him, he wrote The Selfish Gene. So a really a leading um mm. some, some leading thinkers. And um, it really kind of unlocked a sort of fascination in Behavior change, and, and in fact, how difficult it is to affect behavior change. And so, when I was getting to that point of thinking about careers, I kind of knew that I didn't want to do some of the sort of classic things like be an accountant or be a lawyer or go off into the city, which I could see some of my um, contemporaries doing. But I didn't really know what to do. So, I thought, well, I'm interested in behavior, and this marketing thing sounds like you know, it's got <laughs> something to do with it. So, I, I kind of stumbled into a, and it really was a stumbling into a Unilever career, and then you know, found myself in a really uh, fantastic environment where where the businesses that I was involved in and the people that I was taught by really took customers um, and their needs seriously and approaching very rigorously, and were interested also in developing people. So it was a fantastic culture. And so ended up spending about 17 years there in various roles, um, including ending up living um, away in Mexico for a bit, which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of came back and thought, well, actually, I want to work on on products and propositions that are kind of further up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, there's only you can only get so excited about marketing margarine and tea. Um, mm-hmm. So I um, I moved into what what sometime, into working on Pizza Express at the time, and then from that into a series of other sort of leisure brands. I've done that for the second half of my career.
0: Yes, and then you did that transition that so many marketers talk about I'm not sure that many marketers are actually capable of doing let alone actually achieving but you went into Wagamamas and you ended up running Wagamamas how was that your ambition did you always well actually you know I'd like to be I'd like to be the top person
1: uh, no, definitely wasn't my ambition. Um, I mean, maybe secretly it was, but um, subconsciously it wasn't. Um, I think the thing was, I'm, I mean, I was quite lucky in that one of my experiences was working for a very commercial um, business leader um, in Merlin Entertainment. So I worked for a chap called Nick Marney, who's a really mm-hmm. fantastic marketeer, but he is very shrewd and commercial. And I hadn't had that commercial education until I worked for him. And it was sort of combining all this sort of wonderful sort of um uh, sort of emotional um um kind of creative brand building skills that I had it from a Unilever environment with this very strong um commercial sort of uh, acumen that I got from Nick but then allowed you to go well actually I, I can do this you know I could I can you know, we can I can understand this and so um yeah the opportunity came up and, and and I was able to take it so that was that was great yeah brilliant Brilliant. I would always say to marketers now, you have to have both. Care about the numbers. <laughs> um, yes, you know, yes. actually,
0: know. I really care and lean in and learn. I yeah. think I was talking to Jill McDonald the other day, and, you know, she, she's she been at Costa. So, you know, in, in a similar world, actually, you know, McDonald's, Costa, Halfordson's going back to McDonald's, and she said exactly the same thing. If you want to make that change, you know, you'll always be a marketeer, but you have to learn those other skills and really lean into those and I think also take that step back and not be in control of everything yeah marketeers are often quite by their nature lovely creative and quite controlling people and to be the chief exec you can't you can't do everyone's job can you
1: no and i think the other thing you've got to realize and recognize is that marketing isn't the most important profession i think yeah. when you're a kind of young arrogant marketer you think it's all about us <laughs> you know and actually especially when you lead an operational business it really isn't marketing yeah. is a really important function but actually you need brilliant operators to to run the business you know they're the people that be in the in the restaurants or in the gyms that um, late at night on a Saturday, they're the people that will sort out problems. So you need <laughs> you need really brilliant property people. Um, you need really brilliant finance people. So it's understanding that actually, you know, marketing is one of the functions that has to be on song, but it's not the only not, not the only function.
0: Yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? When I used to run oyster catchers, um, I would say to agencies, "Do you know what? Marketing people don't even necessarily know the name of more than two agencies. I know you think you're the centre of the universe." But you literally aren't, and then marketeers are like, Gee, "You're not the centre of the universe either." Always, so uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, it, we all we all come to that realisation, don't we? Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Ben. What was Ben like when he was growing up?
1: Um, I mean, he was a very loving brother. He was. Um, I mean, it's interesting when you see the kind of tributes to him after he died. I mean, he was. He, he was. People liked him. He was kind of glue in any situation, whether that was friends or family or... Um, he was very, very kind, really kind. I think perhaps one of the challenges for him was he absorbed emotion, absorbed stress because stress he was so kind. Um, yeah. And he was very bright, um, uh, mathematically very able, you know, and, and, and he, I mean, I can remember working really hard for exams and. And he sort of seemed to cruise through them. We did um, Mass GCSE at the same time because he, well, it wasn't GCSE then, it was O level, um, but because he, he took Mass a year ahead. And I think we came back and compared the papers, and I, I think he did better than me. You know, I was remember being quite <laughs> cross <laughs> yeah. I like, watched oh, my man. paper versus yeah. his. Yeah, no, he was, he, was, he was just a really, really nice guy. Really mm.
0: Nice. Mm. And then, and then he was diagnosed, did you know, because he was diagnosed as bipolar at, at around 30, was that right? That's right, yeah.
1: Did um, you know that, that, was, that there was some sort of mental challenges for him? No, um, we didn't. In fact, I didn't, you know, looking back, one of the questions you ask is, was the depression in the family? Yeah. But then a series of very unfortunate events, um, kind of life events, stressful life events, Um uh, that happened all at the same time. You know, the kind of the moving house, the changing job, and then um, some stuff that went on in the family that was um, that was also very very stressful. And I think what the, the advice we got we got afterwards that if you put anybody under that much stress, you know, we'll, we will break. And and he he did break. And he had a yeah he, he was sectioned. Um, it was the only time he was sectioned, but he was sectioned when he was about thirty, which is utterly terrifying. Um, if, uh, for, for anyone who's not um, seen it and for those people that have sort of walked into a, um, a, a mental ward and you really admire the people that look after people in, in that condition. Um, yeah, so if that happened, but then he was actually um, really well cared for and put on good, drug, um, good r- drug regime and he seemed to manage to live with them. Um, the thing with bipolar though, for, again, for anyone who doesn't know, is that you'll go through cycles and you'll have other episodes and almost by default at least Ben would want to come off his medicine. You know, he'd, he'd kind of, every three or four years, he stopped taking his medicine because he felt he was in control. And then, and then there'd be another, another um, uh, event, none of which were as extreme as the first one.
0: Right. It's strange that, isn't it? Because you often hear that that for some reason, I suppose we're all the same, aren't we? We don't really like being on medication. It's drilled into us when we're young that we don't really want it. All the side effects. Did he have side effects from the medication? Is that what was making him want to come off it?
1: Well, one of the real real sadness about um, kind of controlling something like bipolar is you you basically take out all the... You take the lows out with the medication, but you take the highs out. So in some ways, you're living your life in a sort of more narrow um the spectrum of emotion and i think he found that quite tough and also you just you know when you're taking them those many meds you just feel tired so there's more of a sense of uh you won't have quite the same zest for life that you do or at least i felt he didn't have the same zest for life um yeah but that's because i knew him so i think for lots of people they would have thought he was just fine yeah
0: yeah, yeah. so then covid struck and mm-hmm. You know, that was hard for a lot of us, wasn't it? Living at home or not being able to go out very much. But clearly for Ben was very hard. Um, What was his life like? What was his work like during that time? What was he doing?
1: so um he went for the civil service and um i think they've moved pretty quickly to everyone being on zoom and having these big zoom calls <laughs> and uh yeah, so yeah. there's lots lot sort of sitting in um i mean i was quite lucky and that I was running restaurants so even though we were closed you had to kind of as we the, we um for a period of time you know there was quite a bit of, of going in and supporting us supporting the business and also as we started to reopen your back sort of um, working in teams, but he he pretty much lived online for the, for a year, um, and and I th- and he was he's unlike me. He was more introvert. I should have said that. So I think it, I think being on Zoom is quite hard for introverts because there's lots of people going uh, sort of shouting for attention. And he, I think you know he, he 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 certainly said he made him feel small, um, and he and he in big groups on Zoom, that can be quite, uh, if you're feeling like that, it can be quite hard. Uh, you don't put your hand up, you just sit there and listen. You don't participate, you don't connect. Um, and I think he found it quite tough.
0: And did you know how tough it was for him? Did you know he was going to get to the place of taking his own life?
1: no. No. No, and I mean, one of the things um, that we were doing in Wagamama at the time and was we we were, we were spending a, a lot of time um, talking to our teams about the importance of um, their own mental health and, and making sure they're having conversations um, about it. Um, and we were working with a fantastic charity called Young Mind on it. Um, And there were a couple of things that kind of came out that one was the importance of always asking people, are you all right, you know, are you really all right, and I, for years I probably hadn't asked Ben that, I'd sort of kind of not wanted to ask him, you know, what if he says he's not, Um, but I had got back into a habit over the 18 months of COVID of going, are you okay? You're really okay. What's going on? Yeah. Um, and the other thing was that he'd been breaking up and uh, to kind of actually film for our organisation what he felt what it felt like to be bipolar, which was which to me sort of said you know he he's admitting this he's owning this he has got this. Um, so I was I mean we we did a lot together we did a lot of walking as a family we talked a lot but it wasn't something so that, that I was expecting.
0: And no. when you last saw him, because you last saw him, actually, I think you said it, at Wagamama's and St Albans, four yeah. days before yeah. um, he died. And
1: did you have any idea? Did you, did you come away from that lunch going, oh, I'm a bit worried about him? No, no. And I think that's, I suppose, one of my me- messages for anyone is that I, suicide is a very impulsive act or can be a very impulsive act. Um, and, and therefore, there is a, you know, if you have somebody who is, um, um sad and you know that they're sad actually really really is worth sort of talking to them um, um so no i i mean i talked to him on saturday and he was i thought he was in quite good shape you know we talked about christmas and what was coming up and um and i did ask him now i asked him how he was i didn't ask him twice which is another thing that i've heard since mm-hmm. um he died that People are encourage you to do with anyone that you're really worried about because actually it's quite easy to go to, to shrug off the first answer. You, are you okay? Are you, really okay? Are you having suicidal thoughts? You, no, no, I'm fine. But actually, come on, let's have a conversation about this. you. Uh, what's going on? And 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 as, as certainly some people have suggested that that is something you should think about doing. And I didn't do that, but I did ask the first one, um, and he was fine. Mm, uh, it's hard, right, isn't it? Um, anyway, I think the the Ronan, the
0: Ronan Kemp. Kemp. Um, documentary on suicide I think really highlighted that point of asking Mm. twice and you're right you know so often we don't we just do the hi oh hi how are you um but I think the other thing is it's difficult isn't it because sometimes it's not about you know for your brother obviously you're very very close you are very close to him So you can have that kind of conversation. You can ask a second time. You can say even, are you having suicidal thoughts? But I think for other people, that's a conversation that's very, very difficult. So it's more around signposting them to get other help. Was your brother still having external help? Was he seeing anyone? Was he having any counselling?
1: Yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, I think I I can't remember when he had last seen somebody, but yeah, yeah, he was. I think they, again, I think the doctors felt a bit like we did that actually, because he, he was managing this, um, there are so many people on the the critical list, um, they probably saw him as a little bit of a success story. So, and he was a success story, you know, he lived with it for this, this terrible condition and had a family, uh, for, for 20 years. So, um, yeah, I I suppose that, that was one of the things we found so difficult, you know, he managed this so well, you know, why now, um, And did
0: he give you an indication? So what? what I don't know.
1: There well, was you... nothing. There was no note. There was nothing. Um, there was no note. And in fact, um, you know, he was with his children, and and he left them that evening, saying, "I'll see you tomorrow." Um, I mean, he he was living separately from 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 them, but he said, "I'll see you tomorrow." Um, and so, I you know, I, I, again, this is from at least from, for our experience, it was a it was a a moment of. Um, moment of madness um which is just awful really
0: awful and it is so awful isn't it because you know and I think you know in the movies everyone leaves a note don't they but 90% of particularly men that take their own lives don't leave a note they leave no indication there's no kind of big this is why I've finally done it this is that this is the moment
1: yeah and I love you desperately which would be really helpful to know (laughs) but no 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 so, uh, I mean, how did you hear? What happened? Um, so my um, sister rang and she just said the worst things happened. And then, I mean, I, I guess you kind of know. Gosh. I mean, at some level you have always known that there was a risk. And that's what she said. And I can remember um, you kind of let out a scream. But, yeah, um, it was... Uh, the police found him. He would um, he hadn't turned up for some of these uh, said and mentioned Zoom calls and work had called after a while um, and the, the police found him in his plan. Yeah it was
0: hard and you were well presumably at work pretty busy at the time.
1: Yeah so we were I mean we're, we're having it, it was it was at the end of 2020 so we were into we were about, I think we would come through the second lockdown, which was in November. We just opened up. Do you remember there was a sort of really bonkers weeks where different bits of the country were in different tiers in the well, run up to- I do,
0: I do, because my daughter was at University of Exeter and we went to pick her stuff up on the way to Cornwall. And the only restaurant that was open was Wagamama's. So we were like, well, thank goodness for Wagamama's actually um, opening. So we remember it so well.
1: Yeah, so we were kind of busy trying to kind of... keep um, on. Um, and 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 keep the business going as much as possible, because there were huge cash pressures on the business at the time um, so whenever we were able to open, we were, were doing it and there was this sort of crazy sort of jigsaw puzzle of like some countries were on some bits of the country were on this sort of restri- these restrictions, other bits of the country, and then we were kind of so all of this was was nice for people who like problem solving. We were Quite, he was very sort of occupied mm-hmm. by that, um, and then it was, and then almost immediately after his death, the country essentially shut down, didn't it again? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the first instance, we weren't allowed to um, have Christmases together, and then in the second instance, we went into a lockdown in January. So I had, um, I mean, in retrospect, I think it was probably helpful that that happened because. Um, you know so Christmas was on my own with my family my immediate family and you're just so sad that you just you kind of don't need to pretend that anything is is okay because it's not okay Mm um the challenge bit for us and I think why so many people um found the whole party gate issue so hard is that you aren't able to grieve as a family you're not able to have a funeral as a family or you weren't in that that period and that really is quite important I think in terms of sort of Coming to terms with it, um, mm-hmm. and, and so he was buried in January. But um, it was, you know, we were all masked up. There were there were six of seven of us that, that were allowed to go. To, that went to the crematorium afterwards. I mean, it was really, 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 really tough. Really tough. Um, yeah, and and then um, wow. and then we were into um, um, into year two of, of COVID. Um,
0: yeah, and at what moment? So you were. You know, I spoke to Pippa Glucklick actually about a year ago, whose husband took his own life. And she said she heard and then she went back to work. She was at the time running a massive agency and she actually went to Germany and did a pitch and then kind of did the work because she was in such shock. And then she came back and just went, well, literally, I can't do this. And then she took a year off work. and um, I wonder what that was like with you. What 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 happened with you? And it's so different because of COVID and everything else. Did you immediately take time off work? At what point did you then decide, actually, I'm going to stop?
1: Um, no, the, I took a little bit of time just to, um, because it was Christmas. Yes. And um, But no, no, I, I didn't. I mean, I think the kind of the key thing for me was... Um, I I've been working with Wagamama with a bunch of fantastic mental health campaigners. So I reached out for help. You know, I, I took my own advice and said, "Help me, talk to me." And one of them was the, a chap called Ben West, who's a very young, brilliant mental health campaigner. His brother also had committed suicide, and his advice was, uh, "You need to get some therapy. You may you may take a bit of time to get it, but you need to get it." Um, and so I got myself some some really good grief counselling, and I. I got it very quickly actually in retrospect, I think by the end, start, end of January I was I was, I was seeing a counsellor. Um, and it was through that process of talking about Ben, talking about our childhood, um, kind of unpicking what had happened when we were young and the sort of the discovering there had been a degree of trauma that had shaped both our lives that um, it made me think It made me really think about (laughs) uh, kind of what was I doing and did I want to have, as you would say, a reset. Um, And it became fairly obvious that I should do that um, at the right point. You know, when the business, when we were reopening properly for um, for post COVID, you know, get through this this crisis and then someone else can take it on.
0: Tell me about that reset, because. You know, if if you I kind of imagine I'd go if I was in your place, I'd go there for grief counseling to try and get over Ben's death. But then you're finding out a lot of stuff about yourself yeah. and then you're clearly not just listening, you're actively thinking, participating and then resetting your life because of it. That's
1: that's quite a big thing, isn't it? Well, I think the thing that about now, because I've had lots of, of great kind of coaching work over the years, the thing that made this different, um, and, and perhaps why I was listening harder, was I was so vulnerable, and I was so open to um, open to uh, needing to sort of. I was hurting so much. I mean, grief is something I've never experienced before. I've been sad. I've been disappointed. But I've never felt grief. And grief, it's just, it takes your breath away. Um, so the therapist sort of unpicked the fact that, and I've listened to lots of your of your your participants, so I know this, she unpicked the fact that we had, I was the oldest, we'd had a fairly difficult childhood and as a consequence of that I had moved into kind of protecting my brother probably when I was five or six and um, that's not a role that a child of five or six should have. Um... Now it gives you loads of good stuff. It gives you drive. It gives you um, the desire to um, take responsibility. It gives you the desire to fix things. But it also um, comes at a huge cost. It comes at a cost in terms of um, your ability to be relaxed. And um, in some ways, you have not dealt with the pain of, of, of childhood. You, you fill your life. You're really you want to be a super per, superwoman um, or superman. Mm. Um, and um, when, as soon as she, she kind of started to unpick this, it just was like kind of a weight lifting, but it also meant that you suddenly didn't have the energy to go. Your whole, your whole modus operandi of how you have been so effective had, was being challenged. So, um, and then the other bit that came out of the, uh, the therapy was sort of thinking about the uh, rela- kind of relationships in your life and the and the way you played relationships in your life. And um, and what were the most important relationships in your life? And I re- I loved working at Wagamama. I loved leading uh, the business, but that what I was I was filling my life with it. Um, I um, especially when you run restaurants, it's a six day a week job. Um, you you know you have to be on your phone on Saturday night because there might be an incident. Um, and it, again, it well, you know where was the space in my life and my relationship with some of my children or the relationship with my son or. Um, the energy that I for, for kind of going to support my mum where was it and it wasn't there so um, uh, yeah it felt it felt like I, I kind of need to, if I was going to do it I needed to do it I needed wow. to do it so um, yeah
0: and how does it feel because I think well, wow, I mean amazing just to open up and say that because I, I see that well I've seen that in myself but I see it in other people as well a lot But most people don't have maybe a moment, like Ben, to really self-reflect, or they leave it too late, or they actually just carry on and don't want to acknowledge it. And it's a sort of passing comment of, I don't spend enough time, or, you know, I don't really love myself, but it's okay, because I'm gonna carry on because I'm a leader and I'm gonna be amazing. How does that feel to say, I'm giving up something I love? And actually, since you were five or six, you know you you've kind of been the number one taking control and helping and supporting people to be amazing.
1: Yeah, well, it, intellectually, it feels absolutely the right thing to do <laughs> uh, yes um, of course and i i kind of because i'm um interested in psychology i've got models i call it basically moving from being center of the pitch to being side of the pitch and side of the pitch is um, um a role that you can play in business but also in your yeah. by not being center of the pitch in business you can be sent side of the pitch for your family um so intellectually it 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 feels great um it has been an adjustment and the biggest surprise and in fact the therapist told me that it would be the biggest surprise is that the gratification system or the reward system is completely different so when you're running a business and you're doing amazing things and you 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 get a lot of of positive feedback and it 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 kind of sustains you and your ego and hey look at me and you might not realize it you might think i'm really humble but fundamentally there is this sort of reward mechanism and it's fairly instant and when you move to being side of the pitch especially side of the pitch for teenage children who might be having problems the gratification is not there they're not going hey mum thanks for picking me up today <laughs> you know thanks for making sure the fridge was full they're not there they're yes. grunting and in fact because you my relationship with my son was quite small it, it's taken quite a long time to get any of that um and so you just the bit that i've had to work on this year is um, kind of creating what the therapists would call an inner scaffold. You know, this is the right thing for me. This is the right thing for my family, and I'm going to enjoy it. And actually, over the course of the year, it's got better and better. But Sunny of the start. <laughs> I found it very, very difficult, and it surprised me how difficult I found it. Yes.
0: Yeah. And and presumably, and actually, because now you're doing some sort of non-exec work, so you've got and some some support, and we'll come on and talk about young minds. But you know, you've you've really gone. Uh, to the side of the pitch on everything haven't you so yeah. you know and that's a very it's a very different role isn't it I think being a non-exec you know it's it's part of my time um is very different to running yeah. something and again this and thought about the the kind of gratification you get I think it's it's often genuine but it's not the same as when you're actually running something
1: yeah, I mean, people don't generally go, oh, it's great to see the non-execs, you know, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, exactly,
0: uh, exactly, nice teeth execs say thank you, sometimes through gritted teeth, don't they? <laughs> yeah,
1: no, it's, it's just very different, it's very, very different, um, yeah. but, um, you know, if I then kind of get, look back over the last year and say, well, what are some of the things I've been able to do that I wouldn't have been able to do, Um you know I've spent more time my daughters one of my daughters at university I've managed to get up to see her in uh, which I probably wouldn't have done I took my 16 year old daughter I volunteered to be the responsible adult on a trip to Magaluf with her six mates. I mean I know normally I run a mile at things like that oh please can somebody else do that but I did that um I've um I took my son up to Anfield we'd never done that before and we're both Liverpool fans um yeah so there are things that you get the time to do and you've got the energy to do that you just wouldn't have done um so and and now it feels like this this could really work but it's it's managing that transition
0: it's hard isn't it it's hard but I think so it sounds like your counsellor has been a really important part of your life your brief recovery but also your really understanding about who you are
1: yeah yeah I think that's the gift that Ben's death has given me um and I suppose you know, I you know if you were asking the question for anybody in a business leader who has somebody in their team that this has happened to I would if you can pro- provide them with some proper grief counseling, I would really encourage you to do that because it's not the sort of thing you can work through on your own. Um, so, yeah, that would be, that was certainly something that I found helpful.
0: And having done the, the counseling outside the grief bit, do you, because, you know, I've taught, and you'll you hear this in my podcast, I've talked a lot about counseling. I've had counseling a couple of times in my life. Obviously I work with counselors a lot at Let's Reset. Um, and I think a bit like business coaches, there are always moments in our life where actually we become better human beings by having some counselling. I mean, not to the American kind of, oh, we should have a counsellor alongside everything else, but I genuinely think it makes a big difference. And I wonder whether now you've done some of that work, do you sort of wish that you did it a long time ago?
1: Um well, actually, Unilever was a fairly amazing. All the businesses I've worked in actually have been fairly amazing at supporting individuals' growth with some form of coaching slash counselling. Um, so, um, you know, Unilever invested quite a lot of money in in um, uh, Steve Radcliffe and his coaches, and we did a lot of work on on how you kind of get in touch with, with what's in what drives you in order for you to contribute to what drives the business um and then moving on into um, some of the um, private equity businesses i've been involved in actually they're really interested in growth and um, good private equity businesses believe that you know you get the best out of individuals if they are uh, at sort of in kind of top performance mode and that that often involves sort of bringing in um, clever people to support, so I've I've been quite lucky. Um, so a bit like you, though, I think it does help to kind of keep going back in uh, in some ways. And this, I think, this bit was so powerful because well, one of the counsellor was was properly first class, you know, and trained as a specialist in this area. Been there, done it, got the t-shirt. Seen lots of people that yes. have gone through. Yes. Um, but the other thing was this thing about um, you know uh, I kind of had to I had to look deeper. I mean, somebody that I had, had grown up with alongside had just killed themselves. Why them? Not, why not me? You know, what? what and, and the, was there something lurking that I, hadn't, that I was burying really hard? So I had to, well, I, I felt I had to. Um, yes.
0: and, and, and have you, because I think one of the difficulties, I, I have you know, I've had lots of conversations with people who are very close to somebody who's taken their own life. I've seen it myself. It's not something I've ever felt personally. I, but I can see uh, how close people can get there, and I wonder for you: have you either ever felt it yourself, or do you have a different insight into suicide now because of of Ben? And the, and just perhaps what takes you from being okay, this is not a great day, or this is not a great week to really being in a place where you think that that's the solution?
1: Uh, I don't think I've got, I haven't ever experienced it either. I haven't ever felt that sort of sense. I suppose the thing that I've learned through the, the experience of Ben is it's much more common than I thought. You know, I thought it happened to people who were really unwell. Um, and obviously my experience with my brother, but then also the, the the number of people who have talked to me and said, well, you know, my father took his life or my uncle took his life or... Um, Uh, And and we weren't expecting either, you know, and you read the stats, it it, it has touched too many people. Um, So I think that that's that's definitely the thing that has shaped me. And, And it makes me much more kind of conscious of that when thinking about how we support people who are suffering from depression.
0: And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is still such a stigma. I mean, you know, right down to the words, we talk about, well, we don't now because the wording, I think has been changed, but, you know, committed suicide. You know, com- that, that's that's a criminal offense. It's, it's not, we don't talk about it in that way or, or hopefully we don't. Um, we don't, you know, if you think of the number of cancer ads, you know, when I first got cancer 13 years ago, people sort of talked about it a bit, but definitely when my grandmother died, nobody talked about it, it was a terrible thing. But we don't see really that much are still around suicide. And it is the biggest killer of men under 40, isn't it? We know this stat. Um, why is it we still find it so difficult to talk about?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think this is why doing what t- today's about is so important, Um you know, you're right. Even asking the question, "Are you feeling? Have you are you having suicidal thoughts?" You know, which is the really important question. You know, even that seems like a it seems like a difficult thing to ask. Um, I don't know. So we, I mean, what what encourages me is we've made so much progress in the last. 30 years in terms of the way mental health issues are accepted in a work environment. There's so much more openness about it. So I think this is just a, another step on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we should be able, there's no reason given that everybody's sort of commitment to, 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 um, to this that, that that won't happen.
0: Yeah. I hope so. It's interesting. I'll come on and ask you what people can do specifically. But I, I am always fascinated every time, you know, and our work is around well-being linking to performance we don't really you know we don't go down the big mental health route it's very important at work as you said you know businesses are much more aware now of giving counseling grief counseling all sorts of psychological help and support to people that need it for that percentage of people but we're very much around you know how can you go from a five or a six to an eight or a nine and how does it link to your performance all the stuff you talked about brilliant stuff they do at Unilever for example um but I'm Always fascinated. At the end, I can guarantee almost every workshop, a few people will feedback and say, "I really don't think we need to talk about this at work." And
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: oh God, absolutely, I don't think we should talk about this at work. I don't think we should be made to talk about this at work. And, and you know, we're not having big, heavy conversations. People don't have to reflect. They don't have to talk about themselves. And inevitably, I can look, and certainly our mental health specialists who are brilliant. They can look around the room and go, you know, you are the people that don't even want to recognise that you could perhaps have a problem. Um, And they are the ones that don't even know. They don't know they're close to burnout. They don't know that actually feeling kind of rubbish every day is not only something they don't have to go through, but something they could do something about. Mm. But they don't want to talk about it because I don't know why they don't want to, because it's because it's hard and because we haven't been bought up. To talk about that stuff
1: necessarily, mm, mm. I'm quite encouraged by our children, though. I think our children are better. Oh, yes, <laughs> they're it's very friendly, different. So maybe, maybe this is just a generational thing. Okay. Um, and they're also pretty good at supporting each other. Um, they support each other when they're, they're down. So um, yeah, uh, yes, but yes. There's definite, there's definite, definite um, uh, hope. I think. I think so. So
0: so tell us, you know, what are some things that you have reflected on, you've learned from young minds that we can do particularly to think about this, to look after each other?
1: So, I mean, there are two groups of people that are most at risk of suicide. One of them is the middle-aged men that you've talked about, but the other is young um, people, um, particularly sort of making that transition from sort of Teenage into adulthood. Um, and I have had the great privilege of working with this fantastic charity called Young Minds. I mean, there are lots of great mental health charities, mind um, the Samaritans, but um, Young Minds specifically focuses on supporting young people, um, supporting teachers, and supporting parents. Um, and um, I mean, I think the things that, um, that I mean, what they're seeing um, because of the pandemic, so this was even pre Ben when we were working with them at Wagamama. I mean, the pandemic has been very tough on young people. We've taken them and we've done a sort of big brother house experiment. We've locked them up for a bit and then we've said, you know, why don't you try and learn online and, and then come back for a bit and then lock you up again. And, you know, even in the case of universities, when your, your daughter was going to university, there was a bit of locking people up in halls and making them live in bubbles of six. Um, and the evidence that that people like young minds are are, are beginning to show is that it will the, it has had a big mental health effect deterioration on young people now it will take time to work work that through and work out what that means but if you imagine that before the pandemic about ten to fifteen percent of young people would have said they had a mental health issue as we come out of the pandemic is about one in four twenty five percent
0: Interesting.
1: Um, and if you then say for people not all of those people need clinical help you know some of that is about parental support teacher support friends support friends but for the people that need clinical help people who are suffering from eating disorders people who are having suicidal thoughts um people who are self-harming you know actually the waiting list for help have gone up like all waiting lists yeah. um so I, I think it's just a, a really brilliant charity, and um, I suppose I wanted to do, do a shout out to all the amazing marketeers who'll be listening to this. To say, if you're thinking about charities that you want to support, please consider this one because the need is just so enormous, um, and they're they're having to fill a gap at the moment, unfortunately, the um, you know the, our national health service can't can't completely fill because um, demand has just gone up. Um, yeah.
0: Yes, uh, and you're absolutely right. One of our psychologists that we work with does quite a lot of work at school. They're a young psychologist with the NHS, and they do a schools program, you know, alongside people like Young Minds, which is brilliant. And they were talking to, I think it was a group of 50, 60 people. And they do, as you would always do in these kind of things, they they fill the the, um, students fill out a questionnaire, which has an element of risk to it. And of those 60 young people, and they were in the sixth form, um, 20 of them were high risk. And when they phoned them That's up, it's extraordinary. That's I know, it's awful. And they phone them up, and they speak to all of them individually, and a lot of them, in this instance, were talking about self-harm. And it would become one of those things that was almost and this is not belittling it at all. It was almost like they have their own conversation. They talk about it. All, all 20 had an element of this going on. And then they said, you know, does anyone know? One of the questions is, does anyone know you're self-harming? And they said, yes, our friends know, we talk about it. And Ooh. and you just, I mean, it's just so, there's so much complexity, there's so much going on. But like you said, a third of that group And there's just the waiting lists are so long. So even I think as parents, if we can ask that double question of our children and we, you know, I've had it moments in my time and both my children have left now home. um, You know, you think you're asking, you think you know them. And then there's something you think, I I just didn't see it. How can I not see that when I even live with them? Mm,
1: Hmm. Yeah. So, but they're our future. So that's where we need as, as leaders, I think, to sort of invest in them and protect them and help them through this extraordinary period of time. I think um, it's going to be very interesting to look back and see how it has affected their, their them as individuals.
0: I think so. And I think the other thing that I, I am hopeful about and also I'm fascinated about is, is those then young people that we're now seeing coming into the workplace. So we do quite a lot of work with... The people, it's you talked about, the, the ones who've been at university for a couple of years, they've been basically working from home and they're now, and they might've then taken a year to sort themselves out. They're now coming into the workforce. So very aware of their own well being and mental health, but actually not very aware of how that translates into the workplace. I don't think they have the same resilience that perhaps we had because they haven't really been at university. They haven't really dealt with, some of the of the really tough things that are going on but in other ways they've dealt with so much that's really really tough and Mm -hmm. so the kind of conversations I think we see and I see that our um, counsellors and our business leaders have you know it's that double whammy about how do you help your career but how do you help yourself and I wonder whether your reflection on seeing young people going into work but also your time at Wagamamas and other places is What advice can we give young people in the workplace to become resilient, to be able to have that balance that perhaps you and I haven't had through our careers because we've been very fixed on our career and perhaps not so focused on our well-being alongside it?
1: Well, I think the thing that um, for me is most important for young people starting work is that they are in a coaching environment. And so that's one of the things that um, frightens me about sort of people starting working from their sitting rooms, even working from their sitting rooms two or three days a week and then going into the office, is that it's the office environment, it's the the response, and it's a responsibility also of people like us and people um, who have had. Um, good successful careers also not to sit in their sitting rooms it may be much more comfortable for us to sit in our sitting rooms we may not need to go into the office but but if you think back to when you were um, you were starting your career you had people that were looking out for you that they were they really had this sort of sense of developing the next generation we will not develop the next generation through teams we won't Mm -hmm. Um, so um, so I'm quite encouraged to see businesses starting to do that now that restrictions but and i would be quite demanding as a young person making sure that i was getting that sort of support um because otherwise it will be very difficult i think to grow up and to start to take responsibility and to get the excitement of being in business and the excitement of creating of solving problems um yeah but i think i don't know my advice i think they're extraordinary i don't believe this stuff about snowflakes i think they're amazing Mm. I think that the creativity of this this generation will be very important as we look at some of the the challenges. And I think their sort of commitment to the environment is much more genuine than um, uh, the commitment in other generations. We need them at the moment to be sort of on the streets saying, "Come on, let's think about the future," as opposed to thinking about how we deal with the sort of the immediate. Or, but let's balance the short term with this future challenge. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, actually, I think I completely agree. I think in a way they are so committed and they see so many challenges that the bit I, I try and say, you know, it actually works fun. You know, mm-hmm. if you take a break and go for a coffee with someone or you go out for lunch, that's okay. You can do that. Because again, they've been in that environment where they worry about a lot of things. They're trying to do a lot of things and they've been at home for most of the time. So they don't know that you can actually have a laugh you know mm-hmm. and you can it's a marathon not a sprint and you know when we well I don't know about you you probably well you, you had a much more grown-up job I was in an advertising agency but you know we, we had a lot of fun we had a lot yeah. of laughs and yeah. you know it's a very sociable environment and we have a we, we do as much socializing as we do working hard and I think you know everything is much more commercial now and that's good but you can still have fun and I think some of that is difficult again on Zoom you don't you know you might have the old quiz and stuff but it's not the same as being together and just having a laugh or having a chat about nothing other than how are you today or what are you looking forward to doing yeah. outside work in the next yeah. week.
1: Yeah well, it was quite interesting going to work in Mexico actually because in um, I remember turning up in Mexico and the um and being slightly frustrated that no one turned up for work on time. They all wandered in at 10 o'clock and then they went off to have a coffee. And then about, about one o'clock, they all went off for lunch and they sat there. I got And I was sitting there with my sandwich at my desk. And about, after about a week, my um, secretary explained to me that actually it was the culture and I needed to get with the programme. And a big part of, of getting a team to work effectively was spending time socialising. And you had to have lunch. You went out and you sat in the, uh, the canteen and you had this lovely... Um, two-course lunch and he talked and then he came back and said, right, folks. Yes. And it was exactly as you say, you have to have the connection in order to um, you have to, to facilitate the, uh, the, or to inspire the desire to, um, to, to, to be successful.
0: Yeah. And I have those different kind of conversations. We were in a, a workshop the other day with a with a lovely client and one of them afterwards said you know I've worked here for 6 years we've never had a conversation like this in 6 years and yeah. I love this business I love this yeah. business I love the culture I love the people I've just never had this kind of conversation and it's made such a difference and yeah. um, you know that's a joy isn't it I think it's great that we can have you know to bring this around full circle really it's very important that we have conversations that are chatty and fun and nice but actually at work, as well as at home, we can have more difficult conversations and they can make a real difference. And I know, you know, one of the things that Ronan Kemp always says is, at the end of his speeches, uh, think of three people today who are in your colleagues or your family or your friendship set and reach out to them and ask them twice, how are you? And you will be surprised at learning something new. (laughs) About mm, this. And yeah. you, know, you might just make a difference to somebody's life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well said.
0: Well, Emma, thank you so much for talking to me today. You know, uh, ben, ben sounds like a very special man, and uh, you know, I'm sure you will all miss him. He will be in your hearts forever. But I hope that having had the conversation, one, I'm not sure these ones are ever helpful for you, but it will certainly be helpful to a lot of people just to hear, you know, what you've said, because it's, I think the the, the the big point to me that I've heard from you and from others is we sort of think that we know the people who are gonna take their own lives, but there's some signs, but so often they just aren't. Mm.
1: Mm. No, you're so right. No. Thank you, Siki. Keep doing Thank your amazing work. You.
0: Thanks for listening if you've enjoyed reset the podcast i'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues friends and family reset the podcast is a let's reset and advertising week global production executive producer is richard larson with me suki thompson thanks to our sponsor liars non-alcoholic spirits and voiceover artist talitha penny music provided by audio network